Are you ready? Are you sitting down? The Shine On Podcast 2022. I've said before and I'll say it again. Divorce affects so many people out there. The money, the property, the assets, so many high-profile divorces. The conflict, the allegations, huge legal fee and support awards, you name it. Divorce is a true team sport. Incredible insight. Top divorce stories. Shine On Podcast. Shine On Podcast. The Shine On Podcast 2022. Episode 29 of the Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. Happy New Year, everyone. I'm looking forward to a great 2022, and I am incredibly excited for season two of the Shine On Podcast. On today's episode, I am joined by Lyra Bazelon. She is a law professor, writer, and advocate. I talked with Lyra about her recent guest essay in the New York Times, Divorce Can Be an Act of Radical Self-Love. Lyra opens up uh, about her career, parenting, marriage, why she's the happiest divorced person she knows, and why the healthiest decision is often one of the hardest ones. Lyra kicks off an incredible lineup of tremendous guests coming up on the Shine On podcast and great topics as we keep pulling back the curtain on life, marriage, relationships, and the divorce process. Producer Dave, Happy New Year. How are you? I'm fired up. i I'm glad you like the production element that we put into the new intro for season two. And it, it was so realistic that I did a double take hearing your voice at the beginning because I thought that was you talking to me. There are Evans all over the place, which is the way it should be. Really looking forward to this year, Evan. Dave, it sounds great. I am great. I feel good. I'm glad that you're good. And I'll tell you what, I am fired up for today's episode and this upcoming season of the Shine Up podcast. It's a new year. 2022. And look, in the days leading up to the holiday and the new year, I have to tell you, I was probably asked no less than 15 times, Evan, are you taking any time off for the holidays? Evan, it must be quieter for you this time of year. Now, when I'm asked this question, I pause and I think to myself, do you know what I do for a living? (laughs) There are no off days, especially around the holidays which is one of the busiest times of the year because it's one of the most stressful times of the year for people and families. But I tried. I really, really tried. And look, while I I didn't take any time off this year, I caught up on a few TV shows. Mm. People have been buzzing about Ted Lasso Mm -hmm. for months. All last year, I heard, Evan, have you watched Ted Lasso? Well, I finally have watched Ted Lasso. I really enjoyed it. Producer Dave, I know you love Ted Lasso. And look, Jason Sudeikis was terrific. He was funny. It was witty. It incorporates a lot of serious points. And I want to highlight something from the show that stood out to me. And it relates to what we talk about here. Look, Ted went through a divorce during the show, and he's coaching a soccer team in the UK. His wife to start the show and his ex-wife about halfway through and his young son are living in the U.S. But despite the geographical distance, and it's tough, make no mistake about it, Ted Lasso finds a way to parent and interact with his son through FaceTime and technology. And technology was a major theme in 2021, and we will see that continue in 2022. And the second show that I watched, or I'll say I started, Mm. was Succession. On HBO. Producer Dave, have you seen Succession? Yes, I'm a big fan. So I'm halfway through season one. It's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely phenomenal. And it's great. If you haven't watched it, put it on your list. Now, for some people, when they watch shows, they say to their spouse, their friend, whoever's sitting next to them on the couch, they think to themselves, I wonder what's going to happen next. Or, wow. That was a great scene. Not me. When I watch a show, let's take succession. I look to my wife. We're on the couch. And I say to her, how would you like to value this family business? (laughs) How would you like to be the forensic accountant appointed to look at the books and records of the family business in succession? When we watched Ted Lasso, I looked at her and said, ah, parenting through FaceTime and Zoom. Mark it down. (laughs) We're going to see more and more of that in court orders in 2022. 
producer Dave, I wonder why she keeps wanting to watch shows with me. <laughs> yes. Some would say you're sucking the fun out of it, but that might be uh, a good reason for you to take interest in it to just, it's good. It's, you know, we often view the world through the lens of popular media. And so, and I think shows like that have gotten more realistic about portraying things like that. It's, it's not just two and a half men uh, with <laughs> depict, depicting some kind of alternative family. It's succession seems to be a pretty realistic portrayal of a family that is kind of crazy in part because they have so much and are constantly fighting about it. So, yeah, I don't know if you would want to get involved in the Roy family's legal entanglements, Evan, but they pay their bills, I imagine. So <laughs> they do. There's something that's said for that. And look, Dave, as I was prepping for today's episode, the first of 2022, I said to myself, I'm not going to talk about the pandemic to start the new year. I'm not going to mention it. I'm not going to mention the word COVID. And I was oh so close, but I can't. I just cannot not mention the pandemic. And here's why. The pandemic is very much with us, maybe more so now than ever before for the past several months. Our lives and relationships and marriages and our family dynamics continue in the new year to be impacted by the pandemic. Some for the better, many for the worst. How you live, what you choose, what you decide, the path forward will be for you in your marriage, in your relationships, in your job. If you're going through a divorce, that path too. The impact of the pandemic on each and every aspect of your life as we start 2022 cannot be understated. But this was supposed to be different. Dave, we've talked about this was supposed to be a different year. The start of 2022, it was supposed to be better. It was supposed to be different. The pandemic was supposed to be a thing of the past. This was the year when you were going to say, after feeling stuck, after feeling isolated, after feeling lonely, after feeling that maybe there was not an escape, thinking the timing was just not right, that 2022 was going to be the year for change. Maybe it still is. Maybe it will be. But I'll tell you this. The pandemic is still front and center on the minds of people who are contemplating divorce. And the questions that I'm being asked by people considering divorce or going through the process lets me know that this is still real and weighing on the minds of each and every person who is really considering going forward, the implications on finances, businesses, and parents. And we have an exciting new segment on the podcast in 2022, which producer Dave has been working on all holiday break. I didn't even let him sleep. There was no celebrating Christmas or anything for producer Dave. Shine a spotlight, which is coming up on the other side of this week's docket. Well, Evan, the calendar changes, but the tradition of the docket does not. Are you ready for it today, sir? Dave, I'm ready. Let's do it. Let's go. And now, let's see what's on the docket. So, Evan, we open 2022 with an interesting and informative series of items for the docket, starting with an article from moms.com. Item one. From moms.com comes an article, Six Ways to Help Kids Cope with Divorce. Steps need to be taken to ensure kids' emotional needs are taken care of during the tumultuous time of divorce, writes Jessica Tucker from moms.com, and then breaks down a few reasons. Have open lines of communication. Let's see. Allow for feelings to be felt. Acknowledge changes occurring. Don't make kids choose between the two parents. What did you think of this piece, Evan? Dave, it's a great article and really an important one by Jessica Tucker, and it brings up a lot of good points. One of her tips that stood out to me is that all kids handle divorce differently and the transition and the news. There's no one size fits all approach. For some kids, divorce may be a surprise. For other kids, maybe it's a relief. For some kids, it's going to be a total shock to the system. But it's also why preparation by the parents and trying to create a unified front is so incredibly important. How and when? you tell your children. And experts have told us it's one of the most important decisions that you can make as a parent and a couple when you're starting the divorce process. If you have a chance as the parents to control the narrative 
with your children. Do it and do it together. Now, there are six great tips mentioned in the article. I encourage everybody out there listening to take a look and to read it. But the one that stood out to me is number two. Don't make the kids choose between parents. And this one hit home for me because in litigation, far too often, I see clients or spouses trying to influence their children. Look, judges don't look favorably upon this behavior. And many times judges will make certain interim or permanent custody decisions based on this type of behavior, which judges view as not only inappropriate, but very harmful to children. But Dave, let me ask you, because you know, I know you've been open and you've talked about your relationship and your divorce at the time for you. And as you look back years later, what are things that you've learned or what sort of what stood out to you at the time you went through, if there's anything? Yeah, the 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 thing maybe I wasn't prepared for or 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 a, a fear that became realized was just that it's going to be emotionally draining. And so no matter how much you put a positive shine on it and that the divorce is for the best, which was in my case, there are still going to be moments where all parties involved are just kind of deeply sad. And I I think looking back on it, I, I, I wish somebody had told me it's okay to be, it's okay to be sad. So, but the thing that I, I learned that, that worked for us, I think was to when forced to choose any step of the way, just think of the kids first. And so when we were negotiating our separation agreement and all that, I, even when my gut told me to maybe fight for something that I could have fought for and my lawyers were telling me to fight for something that that I was entitled (laughs) to, I said, not if it's going to upset the, the piece that my, that the mom of my kids, the piece that we have together raising these kids. And so I don't know if that's typical or not, but that's what I remember. And Dave, that's, that, that's great advice. And, and look, you went through that. But I would think that not only during the divorce, but in the years that follow, that's been that mindset that you had at the time is something that stayed with you when there were co-parenting decisions or things that came up even years later. For sure. Yeah. And and so I, I do think you, you can lay the groundwork right away with your you know soon-to-be ex as to how things are going to go. And those that first year is not going to be easy no matter what you do, but you can definitely plant seeds along the way. And I'm not, I'm not sure my ex-wife really enjoys my company all the time, still, years later. <laughs> years later. But we but, but knock on wood, we're on great terms. We, we're on, we're, we're, uh, we have good communication lines. We are constantly talking about the kids and even celebrating their successes together. And thank goodness for that. No, absolutely. It's great to hear. Yeah. All right. We move on. Item two. From the New York Times comes the article, Why Older Women Face Greater Financial Hardship Than Older Men. An article written by Paula Spann sets forth this proposition that in a troubling picture, American women are looking at a rockier road to secure retirement than their male counterparts. It paints a picture of this woman, Susan Hart, who seemed like she had a grasp on her retirement and then eventually some things hit that were completely unexpected, including the bank foreclosing on her house. Kind of a horror story there. What did you think about this one, Evan? Dave, this is an eye-opening, eye-popping article. It feels like every day we hear about the great divorce, the benefit, people are living longer, people have a new lease on life, happiness. People get happier with age. But this article makes clear it's not all happiness. And this new lease on life, does it overshadow? other concerns, other realities. And look, the financial impact on older couples splitting up, it's not often talked about. And this article in the New York Times calls attention to the financial impact of great divorce on women in particular. The final item on the docket today. Item three. We're going to talk about myths and misconceptions about divorce with the new year. And I know you experienced this firsthand, Evan. It's it's one of those benchmarks of the year to, to take stock of your situation, just as the pandemic was in many ways. And so divorce might be on a lot of people's minds. And today you've prepared a few thoughts. Hey, with the start of the new year, people closed the book on 2021 and they're starting 2022 fresh. And for many people, that means thinking about their relationships, their marriage, self-reflection. And for some, it means thinking about divorce. Now is the time, if you're in that group of people, to research, 
and to consult with an attorney if you're thinking about the process. Even if you're not ready to go forward, start making a list of questions. You may have friends who have been divorced or family members who are, have been divorced, but remember, each and every divorce is different. So there's two myths and misconceptions about the divorce process that I want to address and talk about today. There's only one way to get divorced and one process choice. This is an absolute myth. There are many different process choices, litigation, mediation, collaborative law. Educate yourself on the different process choices and figure out the best process choice for you. The second is if your case is in court, don't expect the judge to yell at your spouse for all the bad things you think your spouse did during the marriage. No, the judge does not care if your spouse did not load the dishwasher correctly. The judge doesn't care if your spouse never put the remote back in the right place. And no, the judge is not going to yell at your spouse for having an affair. So if you're walking into court and you think the judge is going to be 100% on your side and you're looking to the judge to yell at your spouse for all those things, that's an absolute myth. Understanding the judge's role and the way the court process works from the beginning is so incredibly important to the direction that your case is going. Well, this is the first installment of this new segment, Evan, that I'm looking forward to where you have selected an issue to focus on today. The first installment of the Shine on Spotlight. The Shine on Spotlight. Dave, on today's episode, I shine a spotlight on the new year, 2022, and a few New Year's resolutions. If you are going through a divorce, considering divorce, or you're living in a post-divorce relationship, first, make it a priority to understand the finances of your marriage. If you're contemplating divorce, begin the search for your team now. Divorce is a team sport. Have your lawyer have your therapist, have your financial professional. Maybe there's a coach out there for you. Find your team if you're considering a divorce. Now, a few 2022 divorce predictions. I won't be back in a courtroom in 2022, not with any consistency. Here in New York, early in the pandemic, things were shut down. And the way I've litigated cases has been through technology. Microsoft Teams, we're living in a virtual world, but I don't expect, given where we are now, to step foot in a courtroom in 2022 with any regularity. Technology, it's going to continue to change your lives and will be one of the absolute silver linings to come through this pandemic in our personal lives and our professional lives. We will see courts give real consideration to virtual parenting, time, and access going forward. And I believe we will see courts implement parenting schedules that account for virtual access, especially as parents continue to work from home or consider relocating out of cities due to the pandemic. And finally, the divorce spike that you have heard about since the pandemic started. When I took out the Shine Up podcast crystal ball in the summer of 2021, and I gave it a good shake. (laughs) I predicted 2022 was the year we would see the big spike. And producer Dave, we will. Mm. The fall of 2022, we will see the dominoes fall. We will see the stress and the strain on marriages. And that's when we'll see the spike that everybody's been talking about. And really, the impact of the pandemic on family dynamics and family relationships. Up next is my interview with our featured guest, Lara Bazelon. Our featured guest this week is Lyra Bezalon. Lyra is a law professor at the University of San Francisco Law School, where she directs the Criminal and Juvenile Justice and Racial Justice Clinic. She is an author and a former trial attorney. She has used her experience to write pieces about the systemic issues facing the criminal justice system. Beyond her work in the legal profession, she has penned pieces for the New York Times about divorce, being a working mother, and the importance of staying true to yourself during times of adversity. Lyra has been a guest on several media outlets, including CNN, Good Morning America, MSNBC, Fox, NPR, 
and the Tamron Hall Show. Her writing and work have been published in several media outlets, The Atlantic Magazine, Slate, Politico, and her op-eds about crime and justice and her essays about ambition, relationships, and child rearing have been published in the New York Times, Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and the San Francisco Chronicle. She's the author of the crime novel, A Good Mother, which came out this past year, and her newest book, Ambitious Like a Mother, is set to come out in April. Lara, thank you for joining us. I appreciate the time. How are you? I'm good. How are you? It's great to have you with us. And Lara, you wear multiple hats, a professor, author, writer, advocate, former trial attorney, and mother. You have been open and transparent and really passionate in your writings and work about all these different aspects of your life in your writings and work. Recently, you wrote an absolutely terrific and really thought-provoking op-ed in the New York Times, which was published in September. The title of the essay was Divorce Can Be an Act of Radical Self-Love which I thought was eye-opening because of the perspective in which it was written. Let's talk about it. Tell us what inspired you to write it. Well, first of all, thank you for saying all those incredibly nice things. I was inspired to write it because I think that too often, even today, we stigmatize divorce and we make people feel embarrassed and ashamed that their relationships, quote unquote, didn't work out. We have a binary where we say intact families are good and successful simply because they're intact and divorced families are bad simply because the relationship didn't work out. And so we refer to them as broken. And I think that the real story is so much more complicated and that someone needed to say that. Lara, in the essay, you say that you did not get divorced because you did not love your ex-husband, but instead because you love yourself more. Tell us about that and how during your relationship, marriage, and even now, you have been able to maintain that strong sense of self throughout. I think at times my sense of self was a little bit more wobbly, but I basically felt that for me to live the kind of purposeful life that I wanted to live, I couldn't stay married to my husband. And that was the hardest decision I've ever made in my life, but I don't regret it because we just were fundamentally incompatible in the way that we thought about family and career. And for me to do professionally what I wanted to do, I knew that the marriage couldn't survive. And I I don't know exactly why I had such a purposeful sense other than I think maybe I credit it to my family and the way that I was raised and my parents were very clear with us that we had an obligation to help other people and use our advantages in our education in a purposeful way and I think that that was really drilled into me by them and also the the real necessity to be financially secure and independent was drilled into me by my mom. Larry, you mentioned incompatibility. And when you look back on your marriage, was that something as you look to the early parts of your relationship and marriage, was it something that you knew then that this might be an issue down the road? And, or was it something that developed the further you got, got into the marriage? Hindsight is twenty twenty, And when I look back, there were absolutely red flags about why there was going to be future issues. I think the problem was that we were really, really passionately in love. And so I wasn't that interested in getting into these kind of deeper issues. It was easier for me to avoid them. But I think if we had, I think if we had really grappled with things in the beginning, one of two things would have happened. Either we would have not gotten married or we would have thought through what I call the boring parts. Who's going to do what? Whose role is going to be what? When it comes down to kind of brass tacks, will you be willing to move if I have a job? Will I be willing to move if you have a job? But we didn't want to have any of those difficult conversations. And so we avoided them. And then later we were just torpedoed by a series of events that required us to make choices and kind of demonstrate the ways in which we just were not meant to be together. You mentioned the hard conversations and the hard topics. And one of the things that you write about in your op-ed is that being present was a phrase that you heard a lot from your ex-husband. Tell us about this and and the challenge that you felt about being present during your marriage for your ex-husband and also for your children. That word kind of ended up feeling like almost like it was a weapon in a way, because I'm one of those people where it's just hard for me 
to sit. Like, so for example, when I was with my kids, when they were little and I was breastfeeding, I would also read the newspaper or I would be texting on my phone. I couldn't just sort of sit. And my ex-husband has a, a better ability, I think, than I do to just just be still and just kind of be with our kids in this very specific kind of way. And I think also when they were little, just enjoyed, genuinely enjoyed doing more things with them, putting Legos together, things like that. Whereas I was just much more likely to get distracted or be thinking about something I was doing or wanted to do at work. And I think that was sort of this way that in his mind, he wanted me to be with our kids, especially when they were little in the same way that he was. And I just, that wasn't a good, a good fit for me. Interestingly, as they've gotten older, I think, I think that my way of being with them has, has changed and I think evolved because they're older, bigger people. But in the, in that very beginning years, when I think the traditional concept is that you have a magical motherhood transformation. I didn't really have that. Laura, you write that at the end of your marriage, you started to waver and you went through this internal debate about whether to quit your job. And we're going to talk about your job and your career is something that I know you're incredibly passionate about, but take us into that internal debate and what made you realize that quitting your job was not the best course of action for you. This came up because I got an opportunity to run a small innocence project at a law school in Los Angeles. And that was where my husband and I had previously lived. But when I got that job offer, we were living in San Francisco. He had a job at a major law firm and he was making much more money than me. And he didn't want to move to Los Angeles for this job. And that was a reasonable position for him to take because he was out earning me and his family was in Northern California. He was born and raised here, but I didn't want to give up this opportunity for this job. And so what I ended up doing was deciding that I was going to commute. So what that meant was I would get on a plane every Monday morning and fly to LA and I would fly home every Thursday. And when I took the job, our kids were three and one, and I held that job and did that commute pretty much every week, including the summers for over three years. And during those times, I was basically only physically present part of the time. It caused a lot of stress and tension. And I would continually waver and think, I should just stop doing this, even though I love this job, because look at how often I'm away. I should just find something else to do in San Francisco, even if I don't think it's meaningful or what I really want to do for the good of my family. So that's what I mean when I said I kept wavering. We're going to talk about your work at the Innocence Project and all the work that you do in the criminal justice system. When you think back to that moment, if you had made a different choice, do you ever think back as to what your life would look like now, whether it's family-wise or with respect to your career? I do think about it. And actually, I wrote about it in the piece. When I was struggling with this, I would kind of fast forward in my mind and I would think, okay, what would it look like for us 10, 20, 30 years down the road? And as I wrote, I would picture myself at my daughter's wedding and I would picture this version of myself that was really kind of bitter and unfulfilled because I had given up the work that I loved and not had the kind of career that I wanted to save my marriage. And that really wouldn't have been saving my marriage because I would have been so resentful. And so I write about picturing myself in this seafoam mother of the bride dress, skinny and stuck in <laughs> holding a vodka tonic and pretending when our marriage was praised by someone offering up a toast that in fact it had been a happy marriage when it had not been. And that was really my realization in the end that it wasn't going to be worth doing this sacrifice, giving up this job because it was going to end up kind of poisoning the marriage rather than saving it. Larry, when you think back and you mentioned the op-ed and that scene from Father of the Bride, it's a debate that so many mothers, so many parents have. What is your advice to mothers, to parents who are going through the similar internal debate that you went through, how to balance their passion and their love for a career and also their family life? What's your advice to people looking to find that balance, happiness at work and happiness at home? 
Well, I guess I have two pieces of advice. The first one is for people who, who are pretty sure they found their life partner and want to settle down with this person. And I think you just have to ask these really hard questions in the beginning about what you think you want for your career, what they think they want for their career, and how those pieces are going to fit together or not fit together, and whether or not that person is willing to make sacrifices for you, you for them in a kind of helical situation where one person's coming up, one person's coming down, one person's giving, one person's getting, but it's it's bilateral. It's going back and forth. And I think for women who want to have children, but also want to have meaningful careers, those conversations are very, very, very important to have before you get married and before the kids arrive. I would say once you get married and once the kids arrive, what, what's important to realize, I think, is that chasing after this idea of balance where you're going to have everything in equipoise, like how hard it is for a seesaw to be perfectly, perfectly balanced is basically impossible. And so what you need to do, I think, is embrace the imbalance, that there's going to be times where you're going to have intense, lovely time with your kids. And then there's going to be times where you're probably going to be completely consumed by your work. And that's just kind of part of being a human being and having a job that you're really passionate about and also having kids that you're really passionate about. But sometimes one comes in front of the other and that that's something that you should embrace rather than feel guilty about. Laura, I, I love that. I think it's incredibly powerful. When you look at the past 20 months and the pandemic and people are working remotely, what impact, if any, do you see the pandemic have in terms of impacting the choices that people make in terms of balancing work, a career, and life at home? I think for a lot of women, it's become so stressful and impossible because even though in heterosexual relationships, the pandemic put often both people at home who didn't have front-facing frontline jobs, because of the way that we divide labor, women still felt like they were doing more. Some women felt like they had gone from a second shift to a third, fourth, and fifth shift where they were making the lunches and doing the exercise and doing the schooling and the homework and doing their jobs. And they were just completely burnt out and fried. And I also think that obviously for some women who didn't have the luxury of staying home, they were stuck in this impossible situation of if they couldn't afford childcare, they had to basically give up working altogether. I also think for people like me who were lucky enough to have jobs that were somewhat flexible, it was stressful and really, really difficult but it was also somewhat manageable. So there was that slice of people. Here's the bottom line though, and I think the positive is that the pandemic has really brought to the fore how badly we support women, how we don't have paid childcare that is affordable, how we make it so difficult, particularly in the early years for mothers to work and have affordable ways to school and take care of their kids. And I feel like we're on the cusp, I really hope, finally, of the federal government passing significant legislation that will provide for things like free pre-K or daycare that's affordable, paid family leave, things like that. And I feel like it's hard to separate that bill from the experience of so many families during the pandemic. So hopefully that's the upside. I've seen both of those things. As a divorce attorney, I've seen it in terms of the stress on the relationships and the stress on the families with mothers and parents balancing, working remotely, balancing, helping their children learn in a virtual world, balance so much. And hopefully the progress continues because I think it's incredibly important. You mentioned your children. When you were doing that commute and flying from to, to Los Angeles and, and back to Northern California and being away from them Sunday through Thursday, they were young at that time. Have what conversations have you had with them as they get older in terms of your love for your career, being present? Have they been able to understand and, and let's say appreciate your dedication to them and also something you're passionate about your career? It's interesting. Someone, I think it was Tamron Hall, when she was interviewing me, was asking, did I think that what I had done damaged my kids and were they going to need to be in therapy for the rest of their lives? And my first thought was that I feel like a lot of people could benefit from therapy. And my second <laughs> thought was the jury is out. The jury is out on my kids, on, on her kids, on everyone's kids. We don't sure. honestly know long-term. I can tell you what I communicated to my kids at the time. So they went from being one in three to being, I think, 
four and six. And during that time, what they got to know were my, the nature of my work, which was trying to get innocent people out of prison. They got to know my students. They would call to say goodnight on FaceTime. And I was sometimes at work, but they really, I think, learned about this one particular case that my students and I litigated for about two years where we were representing somebody who had been wrongfully convicted of murder when he was a teenager and sent away to die in prison. And the person who was kind of the most critical to his psychological survival, but also to bringing his case to our attention was his mom, who had stayed in the same apartment where the police had snatched him away, waiting for him to come home. And so what I explained to my kids is I need to leave and and do this. And we ended up having to retry the case so that Cash can come home and see his mommy, just like I come home and see both of you. And I think that that was something that really resonated with them. They've met Cash and his mom, Wilma, they're part of our lives, they're part of our family. And so I think making it real to them that everybody has a mommy and everybody deserves to be with their mom. And sometimes it's your own mom that can help bring that reunion about. And also talking about justice. And at the time when I was talking to my son, talking about heroes and villains, because he was really into superheroes and kind of making it real in a way that resonated with them ended up being helpful. I think you make a really good point that look, time will tell in many ways, but you go back to how you handled that situation in terms of communication and being open and honest about them and also bringing them into your work. Laura, the op-ed that you wrote in 2021, it wasn't the first one that you had written for the New York Times. You had previously written an essay from Divorce of Fractured Beauty from 2015. You had stated in that Divorce at its best is a love reborn, birthed from heartache and rage and despair and ultimately forgiveness that creates a different type of family. And you mentioned before that most people view divorce still in a negative light, and you open up with this sentiment in your recent op-ed. Do you see the stigma changing? Has it changed? And how do we get to a place where people look at divorce the way you have? which I imagine was not easy from reading your op-ed piece in the Times. I think it has changed, but not enough. So there was a lot of vitriol directed at me and at what I was saying in 2021, which is divorce can be an act of love. It can be better for the family. A lot of people found that profoundly threatening and offensive and thought that even writing that was just incredibly selfish. And I think that what that reflects is there's a dominant strain in our society that thinks that anything, anything is better than a divorced family. And I think we have a long way to go in educating people that that's not true. I think a lot of folks do know in their heart that that's not true. And I say that because many so-called intact relationships are in fact, extremely unhappy and not good for kids. I feel like There's more and more research that is suggesting that. I think people's lived experiences are telling them that. But I also think that we still cling to this idea that there's only one quote unquote right way to raise kids, which is an intact nuclear family, even if those dynamics are very poisonous and broken. Is it research? Is it more education? Is it doing away with this idea until death do us part, this idealistic view of marriage? Is it, how do we get to a place where society fully embraces that divorce and divorcing in a healthy way can have a very positive effect, not only on the family dynamics and the co-parenting relationship, but also the children? It's all of the things that you mentioned. I also think it's, it's people like me talking about their experiences in an open and honest way, rather than feeling like it's this embarrassing thing that they have to hide from public view. And I guess going back to this idea that the jury is out, it will be really interesting to see, for example, if kids who grow up, the children of divorce, where the parents are co-parents, where the parents love each other and are friends, feel like they had healthy role models. And I hope very much that that's true for my children that they go into relationships thinking, okay, I really hope this works out. And I hope this is forever. And if it's not, I have confidence that I can go on and have a different kind of connection with this person that's going to allow me to raise healthy children. So I think part of it is going to be the kids. Larry, you have a 2019 essay titled, I've picked my job over my kids. And you say what many successful women struggle to admit that Every working mother gets the question, how do you excel at work and also be the best mother 
that you can be. Let's tie that into your upcoming book, Ambitious Like a Mother, which has many of the same concepts, and I'm excited to get my hands on that. Tell us about both the essay and the book. Sure. So the book is the essay, but in a much, much more expanded form. I wrote the essay for the same reason I always write essays, which I think is there's this truth that no one else wants to acknowledge because it makes people uncomfortable, which is Mothers aren't endlessly self-sacrificing when they're ambitious and want to have high-powered careers. That absolutely, that requires at some point you putting your job first, not all the time, but some of the time. And I thought that nobody really wanted to say it, even though it was true. With the book, what I ended up doing was starting with my mom's story, because my mom really was my role model, and she's sort of the through line of the book. And then I interviewed about 50 women, and I tried to be as expansive as possible, all kinds of professions, class, geography, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, married, divorced, single, widowed. So I really focused on trying to get a broad swath and I write about their experiences. And then I also tell my own story and I look at the research, the empirical research, the sociological data and kind of weave it together in support of this thesis that prioritizing your job not all the time, but sometimes can be good for the kids. And the last chapter is called The Kids Are All Right. And I interview the children of the women that I interviewed to see what they thought of their moms. It's such a fantastic, not only title, but it's a great last chapter. What did you learn that may have surprised you about the research and also about yourself as you wrote the book? The most surprising thing that I learned was actually about this very fundamental relationship that I had when I was a kid. So my best friend when I was growing up was a girl named Tamara and her mom's name was Gretchen. And I always held out Gretchen as the ultimate mom. She seemed like the perfect stay-at-home mom. She always had beautiful costumes that she hand sewed for her kids. Their house was gorgeous. She seemed like she was ever present in contrast to my mom, who was extremely busy running around all the time and and certainly wasn't hand sewing anything. And I looked Gretchen up and only (laughs) to find out that she was a professor at UMass Amherst and that she actually, the whole time that I believe she was staying at home, was vigorously pursuing a PhD at Penn. She ended up divorcing Tamara's dad and leaving to take this job at UMass and ended up going on to have this quite remarkable career. And so it was so fascinating to me that this person who I kind of idealized as the perfect stay-at-home mother was not. That was kind of my biggest shock in writing the book. <laughs> and it shows us that we, we, we don't know a lot of times what it really happens behind closed doors in someone else's household. Yes. And, and when I looked her up, I literally couldn't believe it, except, of course, she looked exactly the same. And she was always <laughs> very beautiful and glamorous. Anyway, I just had this idea of her as this 1950s housewife. It was completely wrong. So that was one thing that was really interesting and surprising that in some ways she made even more dramatic ambitious decisions than my own mother had. And my own mother was definitely kind of a standout in her time for some of the things that she did. And another thing that I think I found, I'm not sure if it was surprising, but really interesting was how a lot of these women really navigated these issues with their husbands. And it gave me a lot of hope because the women who are maybe 10 years younger than me, it really seemed like they were having a different kind of conversation with their partners. And it was about the things that you and I were talking about before, about the give and take. And I was seeing a lot more flexibility on the part of particularly these these male partners of being able to shift in their expectations to accommodate various career moves, sometimes literally physical moves in the family. And so that to me was really heartening. It seemed like there was a shift, the shift in thinking. And is is that also tied to the shift in having those difficult, as we talked about those hard conversations, not five years, 10 years, two, three kids later, but really at the beginning of the marriage or even before that, before people enter into a really lifelong partnership? A hundred percent. I interviewed this woman named Leah and She had been married previously to somebody who was incredibly ambitious. They had moved to Los Angeles for his job. She was incredibly unhappy and the relationship ended up not working out. 
And this was, they married when they were in their twenties and they were married for a few years. And then the second time she got married, she really put her own ambition front and center. And the man she ended up with James, they had all of these conversations where she said, I want to work very, very hard so I can move up. I want to be able to travel. I want to, be able to give work presentations and I don't want to have to be the soccer mom. I want you to really own and take responsibility for a lot of what's going on domestically if we decide to have kids. And that's something that he agreed to, and they've been able to stick by. And it stands out in my mind as one of those very intentional conversations that this woman had based on an earlier experience and realizing this is really a necessary part of having a relationship work out. Laura, let's shift gears from the divorce topic to other topics. And you've taken positions on topics and issues that people don't love talking about which I think is, I applaud you, and I think is tremendous, whether it's crime, politics, justice, divorce. I want to talk about your work in criminal justice. You mentioned that you started your career with the Innocence Project. Tell us about that. Well, actually, interestingly, before I represented people who had been wrongfully convicted, I was a federal public defender in Los Angeles, and I represented anybody and everybody, because when you're a public defender, you get what you get, and you don't get upset. So you go to court, and whoever has been arrested that day, if you're, it's your day to pick up cases, those are your clients, and federal crimes range a lot. I mean, I had people who who had been charged with bank robbery because it's insured by the FDIC. I had people charged with assaulting a federal officer because the person was employed by the federal government, even if it was just on some kind of regular property, crime involving complex fraud, human trafficking. So it just ran the gamut in terms of the kinds of litigation that I was doing. And you're going up against the U.S. Attorney's Office, the federal government. So it was a very good, steep learning curve. And I think it's probably the hardest job I ever, ever had. And it prepared me in so many ways for doing the other litigation that I've done since, because the deck is really stacked. The government, the federal government is not kidding around and their investigators of the FBI, they line their ducks up. They investigate these cases often for years. It's very, very hard to prevail and you have to be incredibly resourceful. So that job, which I had for almost eight years, really, I think, prepared me for every other job I've had since. Laura, I think you just took a line from the book Pinkalicious, which my young daughter would be absolutely impressed that I know that, but you get what you get and you don't get upset. But as you look into your career and in in, in, on the criminal justice side, we're a society that has become seemingly obsessed with true crime stories. And I know you have a novel out this year. What is television? get right in terms of portraying crime shows? And what does TV do that portrays certain criminal depictions in a way that is just unfair? There are some really great documentaries that get a lot of it right. I think Making a Murderer was really groundbreaking. And so was this other show that wasn't as well-known called The Staircase. And they're so good because they bring you back behind the scenes and you get to see what the defense attorneys are actually thinking. And I think in Making the Murder, they did a great job, too, of exposing the kind of corruption that plagued the state's case. So you end up, I think, feeling very conflicted about Stephen Avery's guilt or innocence. But one thing you're not conflicted about is that he didn't get a fair trial. And that's in part because they show you what the defense attorneys were up against, but they also show you what the prosecution was doing that was wrong in a way that was very, very clear. So I think shows like that are incredibly educational. I think shows like Law and Order SVU maybe are less so in that they kind of glamorize police work. They make it very binary. The defendants are really often portrayed as these absolutely horrifically guilty monsters. And real life tends to be a lot more complicated than that. So I feel like it kind of runs the gamut. And of course, I'm sure you do this too, but sometimes you'll be watching a show and you'll just think, oh my God, that that question that was asked in court is so ridiculous. Nobody would ever allow that. But I'm constantly yelling at the television. I'm sure I'm sure you do that too. Oh, I see it all the time. I was like, you know what? I should be a consultant, whether it's cross-examination, direct examination. You want to rip your hair out because you see things and you watch certain depictions. For me, it's, it's certain courtroom scenes. And you're like, you know what? You just should have consulted with whether it's a trial attorney or someone who specializes in that type of field. Yeah, my I ha, I cannot help myself, but I watched, <laughs> I, I watched Your Honor, which is a pretty good show, but there's 
a trial. And at one point I literally was yelling out loud because Brian Cranston, who plays the judge, the, the prosecutor asked a question of the defendant who's on the stand and there's an objection. And Brian Cranston says something like very sternly, that's a violation of his fifth amendment rights. And I'm like, he's on the stand. <laughs> he doesn't have any fifth amendment rights. You waive them when you get up and testify. I wish that was true. That I'd be calling my clients right and left, but that's not how the fifth amendment works. I feel like if we watched some of these shows together for anyone else who, who would watch with us, it would be impossible for anyone because I do the exact same thing. There's shows, there's scenes that you see, whether it's in TV or movie, that you just w- wish, even if it was a little tweak, a phrase, or something, right? Not, not, nothing big, but just something that could have been done differently. It just would have resembled real life and have been much more of an accurate portrayal in many ways. A hundred percent. They need to hire both of us for every show. You and I can fix it. <laughs> <laughs> Producer Dave needs to get on that. Absolutely. Laura, you've stated that advocating for criminal defendants and writing about systemic breakdowns in courtrooms and in families, for you, it's always felt interrelated. Tell us about that and why. It's interesting. I think, for example, when I was um, getting a divorce, it was around the same time that my client, who I was talking to you about before, Cash, had been exonerated. And one of the things that really struck me about having to retry that case was how damaging it was for the victim's family because the prosecution had told them a lie for 34 years, which was that Cash had murdered this, this man who was their dad. And they were all in the courtroom watching that lie unravel, having the prosecution manipulate and abuse them yet a second time to try to maintain this conviction, even though the evidence was overwhelming that the Cash was innocent. And when I was done with that trial, I realized that I had spent a lot of time in my career as a litigator, as a federal public defender, but also as Cash's lawyer, really ignoring the other side of the story, ignoring the victim side of the story, because it was just too difficult to contemplate. And I only saw victims as kind of adversarial, either I had to cross-examine them or just shut out what they were saying, because it, it was too difficult to kind of process and absorb, given what my job was. And then I just started thinking, well, what about the other side of the story? What about the fact that there's two sides? What about the fact that they too have to heal? And I thought about this whole concept of those two polarized sides and everybody having a specific story and the actual real story being so much more complicated and got really interested in this idea of restorative justice, which is about addressing harm rather than seeking to punish. And I thought, well, If somebody like Cash could forgive somebody like the victim's family for their mistaken impression or their belief in these lies, and other exonerees can do the same thing, then surely I can rethink my own story and my own divorce in which I kind of cast myself as the victim and cast my ex-husband as the villain, when in fact, that was a very self-serving narrative. And when I look at people who've been really harmed by the system on both sides, able to understand and forgive, I feel like, okay, if they can do that in these earth shattering events, then surely I can do this in my own small way in my relationship. And so when I was able to kind of rethink it in that way and think like, what is the other side of the story? What is the negative space in the painting? It really helped me rethink what had happened and also hold myself accountable And so that's what I mean. I think that there's lessons to be drawn from breakdowns in the criminal justice system and lessons to be drawn from this idea of addressing harm and lessons to be drawn from forgiveness and trying to repair that I've been able to some degree, at least to apply to my own life. And Laura, tell us about A Good Mother, which was published earlier this year, and you've written many legal focused pieces for the New York Times, Washington Post, and several other media outlets. Tell us how you made the transition from writing pieces for whether it's essays or op-eds to a work of fiction. I have always wanted to write a novel and I've written several novels that are in my drawer that were never able to get out of the drawer. This particular book was inspired by a real case. It was a case that was tried by two colleagues of mine who are extremely talented lawyers in the early 2000s in federal court in LA and involved a very young mother who was accused of stabbing her husband to death on an army base. And the defense was that she was in fear of her life and she thought he was going to kill her and kill their infant daughter. And it was absolutely riveting in real life. I went every day. There were so many crazy characters and circumstances. It was something that had taken place overseas. And I thought this is going to make an amazing novel someday. 
And so I carried the story with me for years and years and years. And then about three years ago, maybe I thought, okay, let me try to do something with this and also really make it about what it means to be a good mother. I thought it would be really interesting to contrast the woman who was standing trial, who is a mother with her attorney, who I decided would also be a mother herself, but a very different kind of mother. And ask this question, what does it mean to be a good mother? Because of course, that's the client's whole defense, but also the attorney being sort of cast as a bad mother for the decisions she was making to cut short her maternity leave and really be absent in order to try this case. Laura, that's fascinating. Highly recommend your book. And I have to ask you, how do you find the time? New book out (laughs) this year. You have a new book out coming in 2022. You're writing op-eds for the New York Times. And how do you have the time to do it all? I have the time because I'm divorced. That is the honest to God truth. I am with my kids when I'm with them a hundred percent. And it's very hard for me to be productive in my work life. But when I'm not with them, I get to be completely by myself. And that's really important for writing because you have to be, I think, alone and in a quiet place. And so I just try to really cabin things off in that way. Although sometimes obviously it bleeds and there's overlap, but the dirty little secret to productivity is that I am fortunate in that in my divorce, I have a co-parent who is very, very invested in our kids and 50, 50 custody, which means that 50% of the time I can, I can do my work. And that's incredibly important in terms of your career, your focus, the books, the op-ed pieces, being a professor, handling it all. You mentioned that some of your stances haven't always been that popular in terms of the feedback or the pushback that you you might get from whether it's other mothers or other people. What has been the feedback or what have you heard about this op-ed piece? So a lot of the feedback was about how selfish I was to think that it was a radical act of self-love to get a divorce when in fact, a lot of people were saying that it was very harmful. Some people speculated that I was just in a state of denial. And so I was trying to justify what I did by saying that made me happy when it really didn't. I think that a lot of the criticisms revolved around, it's, it's just not true that your children are better off and who would leave a relationship when they were still in love with the person that doesn't make any sense. So I think it just raised people's hackles because it just goes against the grain of what a lot of people think is, is the right and correct thing to do once you get married and have kids. The people who do push back, they're the people who they're not fully understanding and appreciating everything that's important, not only during a marriage, but also after divorce. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I'm sure you feel this way too. As a lawyer, I tell my students, my law students, when you step into the arena, you can expect to get hit. So I think that if you decide to take a public position about a controversial issue, you can expect that some people are going to say, thank you so much for saying this. This is my story. And you're going to have other people saying, you are a horrible person and I absolutely detest you and you're completely wrong. And those reactions, both of them, are what it means to have a public voice. And so if you're not prepared for that blowback and the positive, if you're not prepared for both, then you probably should just be a little bit quieter about your opinions. <laughs> well, well said, it, it, it comes with the territory. Yes. And Laura, your new book, Ambitious Like a Mother, Why Prioritizing Your Career is Good for Your Kids is coming out next April in 2022. I want to thank you for coming on. This was really terrific. Tell us and all the listeners where people can learn more about you, your work, pre-order the book and read the articles and everything that you're so passionate about. Sure. So I tried to collect a lot of what I've written on my website, which is laurabazelon.com. Just my name smushed together.com. I'm at Twitter at laurabazelon. And I think that I'm also on USF School of Law's website. So people can check that out too. And also check out the work that we're doing in the clinic. And I just want to thank you for having me on. It was really fun. And thank you so much. This was great, Laura. Thank you for coming on. That's a wrap on episode 29. What a show. What a way to start 2022. Happy New Year, everybody. Producer Dave, what a way to ring in the new year. 
thank you for putting everything together, as always. It may be January, but you're in mid-year form, Evan, and I look forward to this entire season of the Shine On Podcast. Dave, I'm fired up. Great docket, amazing interview, and spot with Lyra Bazelon. She was brilliant. Thank you. To all the listeners, you can listen to the podcast on all major podcast platforms. Check out the complete archive of episodes from season one. We're now on YouTube. Follow the podcast. Subscribe. Follow me on social media for the latest content. Head over to shineandivorce.com. I'm Evan Shine, and we'll talk to you again real soon. 